Hello, good morning, and welcome to Hangouts and Headlines, December 1st, 2022. Oh my God, is it December? Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the winter months here in Michigan. I suspect it might be a little bit better for some of our colleagues in other countries around the globe. How was everybody doing this morning? Did you miss me on Weekend Wednesday? What did you do on Weekend Wednesday? Did you come into question time? And in respect of question time, I have to offer my apologies uh, because, and I believe this is fully user error, when I went to collect the questions for question time, uh, I looked at the wrong post with respect to the Utreon, and that's all on me. That's my fault. So we're going to make up for it. We're going to do those Utreon questions we got uh, in some other capacity, uh, probably not this morning, maybe tomorrow morning, maybe in a special episode, maybe depending on how time sensitive or news related they are, uh, pushing them to the next question time. But I want to give my sincerest apologies for that. I make mistakes. Everybody's a human being. We've talked about that a lot in virtual legality. And as soon as I got a couple of notes about that, I was like, huh, I wonder why they didn't show up. And I was like, I looked at the firm update post. I didn't look at the question time post. I am very sorry about that. That is my fault. Uh, and uh, hopefully you don't mind too much. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover those questions. I'm going to make sure they are taken care of because that's what we do here on the Hoag Law YouTube channel. For my own end, uh, I have been enjoying... Uh, the the Christmas presents that I've already received from co-counsel uh, because we needed to get them installed, uh, if you can believe it. And so uh, these theater seats with power recliners and everything else that uh, she got for me uh, to put into my Christmas space, uh, my Christmas space, my movie space, uh, we watched a movie on, uh, the whole family. Uh, we watched Disenchanted. Uh, from uh, Disney Plus, I guess, Disney in general. Uh, and uh, the whole family's big fan of Enchanted. Uh, came out, uh, you know, right when we were really starting a family. We have a lot of good feelings about it. And uh, Disenchanted was okay. <laughs> Co-counsel will probably get into chat at some point today to tell you it was better than I'm saying right now. Uh, but it was very Disney Channel movie-esque. Uh, and uh, if you're into that kind of thing, I recommend it, I guess. It's uh, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's certainly not anywhere close to its predecessor. Uh, so that's Rick's movie reviews this morning. Uh, on the Elon Musk front, it's actually pretty hilarious. Uh, whenever we do a story here, either in virtual legality or headlines about Musk and Twitter or anything else, it almost seems impossible to stay in front of the movement of the news cycle on these kinds of things. So we have some updates even from when I announced this video pretty late yesterday and some other angles that we're going to take on it. But the overall thrust of it is Elon Musk has a fight with Apple that seems kind of deliberately engaged in by him either to get Tim Cook's attention at Apple, which he eventually does, or to otherwise just kind of make friends on the Internet through his somewhat wild ways, including Tim Sweeney and Epic, which is one of the reasons I'm covering it here is because it talks about Apple. It talks about Epic. It talks about 30% cuts. It talks about Elon Musk. It talks about uh, Twitter. It talks about social media platforms, terms and conditions, um, and authoritative sources, information, misinformation. Uh, a couple of people linked it to me and said, this is like everything you ever talk about outside of Microsoft and Activision, which I don't believe makes an appearance in any of the things we're going to talk about today. But we are going to talk about Twitter again. It's kind of a Twitter update video. We've got a number of different headlines. We may or may not talk all the way through, and we've got coverage of the Deer platform from channel favorite Taylor Lorenz of the Washington Post. So get excited for that. We've got a lot to talk about and walk through there. I don't know if we're going to cover every 
paragraph of these seven articles or whatever that I have ready. Uh, but we are going to talk overall about both how this is getting reported on in various quarters. We've got places as far afield as Ars Technica and Reason Magazine uh, and Washington Post articles, Fortune, very different interests in covering this particular story over the past week. But in my opinion, it's clearly getting journalistic clicks. It's clearly getting attention from people. People are invested and interested in this story. And so it's covered in all sorts of places, which also is part of discussing things on headlines. So with that said, how is everybody doing? Did you see Disenchanted? What did you think of it? Did you like the first movie? How do you feel about Elon Musk? How do you feel about Twitter? How do you feel about anything in between on those topics before we hit into the headlines? Uh, Disenchanted was okay, says Leslie. Hey, Leslie, love the cat. Not great, not terrible. I, I kind of feel the same way. I don't think it's awesome. I don't regret sitting there and watching it. My family had a great time. We got to try out our, our new movie seats, which was really, really cool. Thank you, co-counsel, for that present. But, like, the songs were demonstrably worse. The, the plot line's a little bit unfocused. Amy Adams is still awesome. Patrick Dempsey has absolutely nothing to do in the movie. They could not solve that script for him uh, or his character, so that's pretty sad. Uh, and uh, I, I wish I wish they'd done more. I, it seems like I say that a lot uh, with respect to Disney Plus. Uh, and so I'm, I try to remind myself they have Andor. I really love Andor. Andor is one of my favorite things this year. Um, and not everything Disney Plus feels straight to video and terrible, but a lot of it does. <laughs> a lot of it does. Uh, Lovely says, hello, Mr. Hogan. Hello, Hangouts and Headlines crew. Hello, crew. I like crew. That's, that's, a, that's a fun word. Uh, what is Disenchanted? I used Dispel Magic in D&D this week, so question mark. Disenchanted is the long erstwhile sequel to, I think, 2007's uh, Disney movie Enchanted, starring Amy Adams uh, and Patrick Dempsey, in which a Disney cartoon princess is brought to the real world, New York and Manhattan, uh, and antics ensue. Uh, Disenchanted takes place either 10 or 15 years later, depending on who you ask. Uh, the age of the child doesn't really work if it's 15 years later. So shrug man emoji. Don't know. Uh, but it is sometime later. Everybody's older. Uh, and uh, again, antics ensue. Different antics. Much more Disney Channel, Saved by the Bell antics. Uh, so uh, if that sounds good to you, check it out. Uh, it also clearly has kind of a lower budget uh, than the original movie and winds up feeling a little bit like a like a Descendant sequel or something like that. Uh, so please do check it out. Wish it were better. It's not awful, but uh, it isn't it isn't my favorite thing ever. Sardinism says High School Musical still has guilty pleasure nostalgia for me. It has a High School Musical vibe if the songs were significantly worse than High School Musical. So that's also gonna <laughs> that's also gonna inform people as to whether or not they want to check it out. It's actually a surprise. I think the same people that did the Enchanted songs did this one, but they've been making a lot of music for the last 15 years. Uh, so it, it just didn't work out. Sometimes that's timing. Sometimes that's uh, changes in the script that can't be easily accommodated by songs. But uh, yeah, in particular, the power song, the power ballad song is ludicrous in its lyrics. Uh, and, it, and the whole movie kind of presents as more of a parody and uh, satire almost than the original, which was also a kind of parody and satire, but there was an earnestness there. There was a heart there. Uh, so without spoiling anything, this isn't the spoiler zone for Disenchanted. <clears throat> I just don't think it matches uh, the level of the original, which I really didn't expect, but it doesn't come as close as I would like. 
So there you go. There you go. Emily says, I wanted to go see the Knives Out sequel today, but apparently the last day to see it in the theater was Tuesday. Yeah. Maybe I'll do, maybe headlines tomorrow will be about Knives Out because it's super interesting. Netflix put it in theaters, not in all theaters. It wasn't a terribly wide release. It was something like 500, 600 theaters. And they did it for like a week, essentially to drum up interest in watching it on Netflix next month, like a full month after you might otherwise be subscribed to Netflix. So they're they're trying to play games with this stuff. Theatrical distributors are upset at Netflix. So there's some interesting stuff to actually talk about in that space. It's one of those that's on my bookmark list as potentially being a kind of casual Friday hangouts and headlines. Let me know uh, if that sounds interesting to you. But yeah, sorry you didn't get a chance to see it. It will be on Netflix, I think, in middle to late December, something like close to Christmas. Astrid, good morning from Erlingen again. Haven't watched Disenchanted yet. Dreaded it a bit. Will do now that it seems to be at least not awful. Retwitter, I got myself a Mastodon account. Toothy smile. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that a lot of people are doing that. Um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think you'll be offended by it or anything. Uh, and it does actually progress some of the characterizations. It's just that it has a lot of wasted space. Uh, you see this sometimes, right? Especially in TV shows, even more than movies where, uh, you've got this cast that you have to try to accommodate. So you come up with plot lines for everybody. And some of them are just, they just don't work. They don't actually fit into the movie. Uh, and that is in fact the case with Disenchanted, just a very clunky kind of script. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, that's a shame because Amy Adams is awesome. She is awesome in Disenchanted, maybe not quite as awesome as she is in Enchanted because she's got a different job to do there. Uh, but she continues to be a, a great actress and fun to watch the whole time. Uh, being a parody of itself is kind of Disney shtick lately says Rax, uh, Rax is, I never, I never get this pronunciation right. Yeah. You can certainly say that for some of these things, Marvel is is in a kind of parodying right now uh star wars interestingly enough has probably its most earnest series in andor uh, the least kind of uh parody version of itself mandalorian slips into parody quite a bit uh, with respect to like stupid stormtroopers and things like that andor takes the whole thing seriously so it's it's just really weird disney plus doesn't appear to have had a strong creative lead like overall as to what output they actually want to be putting on this channel or the streaming service. Uh, and that might be one of the reasons why Bob Chapik was like, oh, honestly, uh, when you start to see massive losses on the content production side and you start to see just variability of quality, right? If you think about this as not a creative pursuit, but as, again, I use ball bearings all the time because we have ball bearing factories here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, it, and if you had this kind of variance in quality in making something like a ball bearing, yeah, yeah, you'd have problems at the operational and management level. So I think part of the reason Bob Iger is sitting there now is to try to save Disney Plus as some place that you can think of going for value uh, and that you can get people in and that they can accept a price increase of the kind that is coming in about a week over at the Disney side. Nicholas asks the important questions. Have you seen the trailer for Cocaine Bear? Hey, YouTube, that's the name of a movie. I'm not espousing the use of cocaine or bears uh, in this space. I have only seen kind of the Twitter threads uh, and it, it just reminds me of a kind of meme advertising type movie, much like Snakes on a Plane was oh so long ago. Uh, so I haven't actually clicked through to that trailer. Extremely loosely based on a 1985 incident of a bear getting into the cocaine. I, I assume that's what it's based on. Once a bear got into cocaine and, and, and then they said, hey, let's make a movie out of a cocaine bear. 
might be great. Hopefully it's tongue in cheek because you name it that you've got that kind of internet zeitgeist Mimi quality to it. Uh, but I have no idea. It's not anything I'm going to be checking out first and foremost. So you guys let me know whether that's worth my time uh, on the bear that takes cocaine. Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting choice. Certainly Deidre Simmons. Good morning, Hogan, Mrs. Ho. Good morning, Deidre. Always love starting my day with hangouts and headlines. It's my favorite place on YouTube. That is so nice of you to say. YouTube's a big place. Well, we really appreciate having you here. Thank you for the kind words. Good morning to you. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you stopping in. Roxanne, Netflix also put Knives Out in theaters to have eligibility for awards. Uh, Netflix didn't own Knives Out. Netflix didn't have the distribution rights to Knives Out. Knives Out was a normally distributed movie to begin with. Pretty sure on that, Roxanne. Netflix signs on to the licensing deal for Knives Out 2 and 3 after the success of Knives Out, which gained like, I want to say just south of $400 million on a on a pretty small budget uh, while Ryan Johnson was busy not writing Star Wars movies. Thank God. Thank you, Knives Out. Um, so... I, I don't think I don't think that's right. I don't think Netflix had an interest, an ownership interest in Knives Out. But I also don't think you're wrong that that uh, Netflix has put out movies that are made by them for short periods of time to be eligible for awards. I think Red Notice was in theaters for like five minutes. Um, I think one of their other kind of premiere movies was out for a few minutes uh, in theaters to do that kind of, hey, uh, yes, we'd like some Oscar cred uh, on this stuff. Kelly says, I didn't watch the trailer for Cocaine Bear because I was like, what? <laughs> yep. It has that effect. You're like, should I click on the trailer for Cocaine Bear? I have thoughts. I have thoughts. Uh, Joshua says, Hoglaw, it's a shame Andor came out just as some people stopped giving Star Wars shows a chance. Boy Cried Wolf won too many times. Hope it doesn't hurt the Andor or its director's future prospects. Yeah, that was really interesting to see, Joshua. You make a great point because... I am a masochist when it comes to Star Wars, and I turn on the first episode of everything. Um, this is my own personal weakness. Uh, and even as I didn't like Mandalorian season two, I hated Boba Fett. <laughs> I'm like, well, we'll give Andor a chance. Uh, and I watched the first episode, and it's pretty slow. But they released the first two, I think, together. Might have been three. I think it was two. Uh, together. And so I watched that one. That one was slower. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. And as it went on, it was just uh, it, your, your patience was actually rewarded with Andor. Uh, and again, for folks that didn't watch Question Time, I have not seen the last couple of episodes of Andor. Uh, I have been watching with my folks. Papa and Mama Hogue sometimes pop in. At least Papa does. And uh, they were out of town for Thanksgiving to visit other Hogue members across the country. Uh, and they wanted to uh, have us wait to finish up Andor until they were around. So We'll probably be watching the ending of Andor the last couple of episodes tomorrow, would be my guess. Uh, but we will see. And then I'll be able to better talk about Andor as a whole. But everybody says the ending is awesome. In fact, they say it too much to me. Uh, so I want to try to not let my hype get too high for the ending of Andor, lest I be disappointed. Uh, but it is a shame that I did get pushback when I'm first recommending Andor. I'm like, no, no, this is the real deal, guys. Trust me. Uh, they're like, no, nah, I've been burned too much by Disney on Disney Star Wars. It's like, I don't blame anybody for saying that. So it is a shame. Hogue, have you seen Black Panther? Watched it, enjoying it, though found it a bit too long. I assume you mean Wakanda Forever. I have not seen that. Probably at this point in time, as we head into the holiday season, we're going to wait for that to come out in a, in a fashion that I can watch it at home. Uh, so missed that window. Uh, I did some other fun stuff instead. Saw a bunch of Christmas lights over the break. 
uh, and uh, just didn't go to the movie theater. So I'll probably watch it when it comes out at home. I definitely will. Uh, but I don't think I'll be getting to it in the theater. Next movie tickets for the Hogue clan are Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Uh, so uh, my daughter in particular really loves Avatar 1. Uh, and so we watched the Avatar re-release in theaters, which was awesome to see that 3D again. And then I, I, go, I bought tickets to Avatar 2 on the biggest screen I could find. So, hey, I make no promises about the plot of Avatar movies, but I'm sure it'll be a visual treat. Uh, and we're looking forward to it. So that's the next movie for us. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I really am looking forward to it. I think it'll be fun. Kelly says snakes on a plane was an awesome guilty pleasure. I'm trying to remember whether I've actually ever seen snakes on a plane or whether I've just seen trailer footage and clips and things. I don't remember. So it either had absolutely no impact on me or I didn't see it. <laughs> they already made cocaine bear. It's called Ted. You know what? Half blood hella. That's a good joke. I'm still waiting for an entire race of Ted's to be discovered on the Orville, uh, just to bring those universes together. I think that would be quite the episode. <laughs> a lot of people talking about the bear, like it's just an effective, like uh, thought worm to get you interested in the movie. Isn't it? Is cocaine bear about the bear that ate all the cocaine that fell out of that drug traffickers plane back in the eighties. If so, it's based on a true story. Cocaine bear to be clear is about a bear that takes cocaine. That that happened at one point in the 80s is just kind of incidental to the notion, as far as I understand it. Uh, but yes, it is based on real events. <laughs> Have I watched Willow yet? Nope, we elected for Disenchanted instead of Willow. It was kind of the choice being made yesterday. Had such high hopes, but couldn't even get through the whole first episode. Pretty cringy and CW-esque production value. Man, I hope not. I hope not, but you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> Snoopykins coming in with the unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinions are welcome as long as they're well-reasoned Snoopykins. I really dislike Star Wars, Star Trek, anything with a star, really, or most shows to do with spacey things. That's totally okay. If you had said, like, you only hate half of them, but you really like space or something like that, that's different than I don't like that genre. You know, I'm not a big fan of certain genres. I'm not a huge fan of the cynicism of noir even though I like some of the stylistic effects of a, of a noir movie. I don't like this notion that, you know, all is evil and corrupt and it's all just fighting against the darkness that will win every time. I don't, that's not, it's not a genre that I enjoy. So if you tell me, hey, I don't like airlocks or aliens or planet hopping or whatever else might characterize star shows or movies for you, it's totally okay. Uh, it has to be a really very good Western for me to enjoy it. There's a lot of dumpy Westerns I don't like very much. Um, so, yeah. I totally get that. Everybody's allowed to not like specific genres. Believe me. Every time I talk in October now, which is once, <laughs> about my love of uh, horror movies, very specifically uh, kind of psychological horror movies, people still come in and say, I don't like horror at all. Totally fine. Acquired taste, maybe. Very specific genre. Absolutely more than fine. Callista, loosely based? Yes. Yeah. A bear has had cocaine. And so we made a movie called Cocaine Bear. I've never seen Avatar, lol, says Midnight Yell. Hey, you can check it out if you're interested. I will say that it does play better in 3D than it does in 2D because there's a lot of magic there. Uh, but uh, it's it's an okay movie. It's just very formulaic. Uh, I, I really like the music in it. I, I really like some of the stuff it does with kind of the epic scope, which we used to get more of. We used to get more epics. You know, Braveheart won an Oscar for Pete's sake. So did uh, 
uh, Gladiator. Uh, those kinds of movies used to exist. Avatar is kind of of that vein, a big giant epic. Uh, and uh, Avatar 2, I would imagine, is the same kind of style. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Sequel to The Last Starfighter would be nice. Corwin, have you watched The Last Starfighter recently? I, I just watched Last Starfighter not too long ago. And the space stuff, which I think everybody remembers, is very cool. Uh, and the stuff at home is really weird. Really weird. Uh, so I think they'd have to make some tweaks to the formula uh, to get that one across the finish line. But yeah, I used to love Last Starfighter. What, what kind of gaming person like me doesn't love the notion if you get good enough at a video game, they're going to take you in and you're going to save the actual universe. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> got other people talking about cocaine. <laughs> YouTube's going to look at this chat or this video and be like, I don't, uh, I don't, he's not actually like advocating for drugs, but they keep talking about this bear a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sue with the super chat. Good morning, Sue. Good morning from West Michigan. Sipping out of my holiday gaming dino mug this morning. Cheers to you. When might we see Waffle Bear merch? I think you'll see Waffle Bear merch in 2023, but here's the rub. I'm not sure it's going to be on my store. So Littlest Hoagling has plans. Uh, and so uh, we, will, we will see how that comes to being. If it does happen in a different location, we will certainly tell you about it in this space. We will make sure that you know that Waffle Bear is available, uh, but uh, it's just uh, we got some we got we got some logistics planning to do. That's kind of it's kind of what's happening behind the scenes there. Uh, Robbie Dobby says I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Star Wars not so much. They're very different kinds of science fiction. Star Wars not so much science. I tend to think of Star Wars as a fantasy, more Lord of the Rings with spaceships instead of magic. Uh, and uh, Star Trek is at least ostensibly in part what it could look like to explore uh, the galaxy, uh, even though, you know, you need dilithium crystals and replicators cause all sorts of interesting economic questions, uh, both in terms of energy resource management and unlimited goods, all sorts of things we could talk about with respect to replicators and transporters and dilithium. Here's Bradley Rogers just yelling Dune, which I'm always for. Dune, one of my favorite books. Uh, Dune, really like the, uh, the the revival movie, really like the sci-fi channel movie, really just like Dune, like a lot of board games about Dune, video games about Dune. Dune's great. So I, I will uh, match you, Bradley Rogers, Dune exclamation point. <laughs> the only movie I've seen in the past 15 years, says Alexis, is 84DE. Alexis 84DE, sorry, uh, is has been James Bond, I don't do movies. Which James Bond? All of them? You only go, you show up at the movie theater every time a James Bond is released, which isn't terribly often, thanks MGM. Uh, or uh, just some of the more recent James Bonds. I'm interested in this. Britt Cormier and or survives. Oh, come on, Britt. That is not a spoiler because he's in Rogue One. Yeah, I know. It's the problem with prequels, right? And I try to put it out of my mind. I'm actually very successful at this with prequels of just, they want to put people in peril. Uh, and so uh, just not remembering who survives what is pretty workable for me in most contexts but it does mean that in a show like Andor you have to have people that you introduce as characters that you'd actually care about if they got into real danger uh or died uh, as part of these kind of things and I, I think they've been doing an okay job of it sometimes it's formulaic Andor really isn't trying to rewrite the rule book on anything uh it's it's very closely tied to kind of uh 
oh, I don't even know, like a World War II movie with a resistance, uh, collaborators, empires and whatnot. Uh, and, and it's pretty much just hitting those notes, but it's hitting them so well uh, compared to some of the stuff that we get from Disney uh, and elsewhere on streaming or in our media lives that it's just really, really enjoyable. Um, so he cannot die in the prequel. Thank you, Brett. Prequels to prequels have no appeal to me because I know they will survive. Like pod raising in the first set of Star Wars prequels. Brett, let's talk about this. Let's talk about you. Thank you for the super chat, by the way. But it cannot be that the only interest you have in a story is whether or not the characters die. Right? That can't be the only interest that you have in a, in a tale like Andor or Episode One or any other prequel you can imagine. Now, I do think showrunners and movie writers sometimes put people in peril that for long enough periods that you do kind of do the calculation in your head being like, this guy isn't actually in danger uh, in the story. And that can be kind of removing of things. But I, at least as far as I've watched in Andor, which is I think 10 out of 12, something like that, they haven't been too bad about putting the main character, Cassian Andor, which I still think is a somewhat ridiculous name, but it's it's vaguely Star Warsy. It's better than, what what is the one from the video game? Cal Kestis, I cannot stand. I hate that name. Sorry, Cal. Uh, I think they do a pretty good job of setting other things as problems. The, the, the future of the rebellion, which we know will survive, right? We know the rebellion will ultimately come into play in episode four. But the, the how of the thing is as interesting as the what of the thing, in my opinion. Um, and so I think Andor is still pretty useful. But just like somebody doesn't have to like star movies in general, you don't have to like prequels if you're just really invested in saying, hey, I know how this turns out. I, I do like to find out the why if they have done their homework. Obi-Wan was terrible. There was no why there. It was all made up, all felt like fan fiction. Everybody had low production values. It was just no fun at all for me. I know some people like Obi-Wan. I'm glad you did. I'm glad anytime somebody likes something, I'm not here to be a wet blanket on everybody's likes. But I uh, I thought that one was bad because it just had no, it, was, it wasn't explaining anything. It was making up a story. This one is very clearly, hey, how did the empire operate? How does a rebellion get started on a galactic scale? What does that mean? <clears throat> who, who is invested in it? You know, I think, uh, what is it, Skarsgård? And um, the, the actress playing Mon Mothma, like that's some of the most fun stuff for me. I love that kind of political machination. And I know like people complain about that in the prequels, but I think you see the opposite of it when you look at something like the Disney Star Wars, where like no politics at all. We're not gonna let you know anything about anything about how the universe is, is working here, which makes everything feel tiny. Uh, in scope and importance. Uh, Andor is the opposite. Andor is let's have entire scenes where the government bureaucrats are in a circle and I I, I would eat them up. I, I honestly would watch like a, a, a show about the, the Empire's briefing room and just kind of back off as politics. Not a parody. I don't want you to make fun of it, Disney. But just actually watching them have those interactions is one of the best parts of Andor to me. Does that make me weird? Probably. We're all weird, folks. Uh, but that's that's one of the things I think really works for Andor is let's talk about how this would feel in reality. And that's fun. That's fun. So, Britt, I'm sorry you're missing out on Andor. I absolutely love it to death. But thank you so much for the super chat and the support. Your constant support. It is awesome. Uh, what else do we have here? I do want to get into Elon as we as we press on here. Um <laughs> Joshua, death is the ultimate form of expression or something. Britt might have a point. Makes you wonder. I'm not saying death isn't a useful part of storytelling, including danger and peril. But if it's only death, it kind of feels like that uh, 
that section of the office where Michael Scott is doing uh, the, the play acting and he only ever brings a gun to his imaginary play acting because that's as dangerous as it can get. And everybody's like, well, there's other, there's other ways to have this scene play out than you have a gun. Uh, it seems like you don't have to just write for death. A lot of stories don't have the main characters die. Um, and you can still have fun with that. Just try not to put them in over extensive amounts of peril, writers, because that's not going to play too well for you because we know that these people survive. Britt says it's not the only reason. Okay, fair enough, Britt. Much like watching racing, I want to see who wins, but I also want to see the crashes. Sure, sure, I get that. I get that. And it's the job of a show like Andor to add enough interesting characters that you haven't seen before that could potentially die and be imperiled that you're interested in. I think Andor does that. I think Andor does that. Uh, Donna says Wednesday on Netflix was awesome. I'm still only halfway through the first episode. Still on my list. Uh, so I will check that out. Whiskey says morning. Good morning, Whiskey. Alexa says James Bond, all of them can't wait for the new actor. Okay. So you only go to the theater for James Bond movies. I actually love that. I'm a big fan of James Bond movies. Uh, and I'm actually a big fan of basically all of them, um, for different reasons, whether it's comedy and ludicrousness or bad fits for James Bond, good fits for James Bond. Um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite James Bonds is one that people don't talk about very often, which is tomorrow never dies, which of course is about, this is actually a pretty good segue. We'll see if I can just segue this directly to the air, which is actually about a, a billionaire media industrialist Titan using information and misinformation to attempt to gain control in the world. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's one of my favorites, but it doesn't get talked about a lot. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's better than die another day. I promise. Check out Tomorrow Never Dies. Okay, well, we're going to use that as our segue because we're going to talk about our own industrial tech titan that may or may not have designs on world domination. Who knows? I don't know what to, uh, I don't know what to say about what Elon Musk does or doesn't want out of life. <laughs> what is best in life, asks Elon Musk. Um, so we'll just get this window set up and we'll talk a little bit about it. So like I said, this is probably a little bit of a different version of headlines than some of the ones that we would do where we go through every line. This is kind of a potpourri of different headlines. You can see the tabs even on the top of your screen go all the way into the logo. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about it a little bit because there are these different angles and different focus points that everybody has. And these articles come from various points in the last four or five days, just to kind of give you the, the, the overall 30,000 foot image. And the, the one I used for the headline, I thought was the one that was the most provocative. So this is Yahoo Finance. We've talked about Yahoo a lot as an aggregator. Good news about Yahoo is they go and they aggregate things that are otherwise paywalled or problematic and, and difficult to get to, or, or formatting is terrible. Uh, but it does mean that they get a little extra credit for me on like the front thumbnails here. So this is actually a Fortune article and it is titled, Elon Musk gutted Twitter's content moderation team now he's worried about tyranny if Apple deplatforms him. Now, this is interesting, right? Because this headline doesn't really go together super well. So we kind of have to analyze this as what is the intent of the Fortune headline here? And it would seem to be highlighting some kind of hypocrisy. Elon Musk guts Twitter's content moderation team. Gutted is already a kind of very editorialized word, right? You don't use gutted if you're in broad agreement with what has happened in general, uh, right? You know, Elon Musk reduces size of Twitter's content moderation team. Those kinds of things. Gutted is like, oh, went in there, gutted the thing. And now he's worried about tyranny if Apple deplatforms him. Now, the tyranny is in quotes, both because they're quoting Elon Musk, 
but also in a headline format to suggest, you know, tyranny if Apple deplatforms him. He did a ridiculous thing, and now he's upset if Apple does a ridiculous thing back. He's trying to highlight some kind of hypocrisy, but I don't think they actually go together super well uh, contextually here. So that's that's interesting to me. Uh, let's see what they actually have to say. Elon Musk warned the world faces nothing less than cruelty and oppression if Apple makes good on its alleged threat to drop Twitter from its app store. So we can see the framing here. And actually, it's framing that I was very similar to that I was, uh, wait, wait, spoiler alert, skew. Didn't Musk and Cook kiss and make up in a tweet? We'll, we'll get there. I got you. <laughs> Like I said, it's very difficult to keep up with these things. So this article is from like a day ago. Uh, and we actually have to make sure uh, that we try to update the stories when we have these headlines. But I got that tweet. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. But in terms of this article, you can see that the framing here is Elon is a crazy James Bond-esque supervillain, right? Tomorrow never dies type guy. Uh, it warned the world facing nothing less than cruelty and oppression. And I actually, I didn't go this far as the head of this Fortune article does. But earlier this week, when we were talking about Fiji, I actually highlighted the tweet we're going to see as being hyperbolic and self-aggrandizing and kind of ridiculous because it was. Elon Musk, if you follow him on Twitter, and it's a very entertaining follow, does go far afield, does go into this heightened comic book land of speech uh, that I don't think is very effective rhetorically, but it's clearly pretty effective for getting your name in the paper. And it's pretty pretty clearly effective for getting people to talk about you in general. Uh, and so it depends on what your goals are, as we like to say in headlines or when we're analyzing corporate messaging and virtual legality. What are you trying to achieve? Uh, and so you could think Elon Musk is crazy. And I do think he tends to be on the crazier side of things. Uh, but you could also offer that he's using that craziness to achieve his ends in a way that, well, Hogue wouldn't do, uh, is maybe benefiting Elon Musk and Twitter. And that's what we'll get to the kissing and making up, which... Uh, you could argue is a part of this, uh, that this is what he was aimed at when he says, this is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Okay. I'm not sure Apple deplatforming Twitter is the abandonment of everything that uh, Americans hold dear, but you know, Elon Musk out there. Musk hopes to turn Twitter into a super app. So again, this is fortune, right? When we talk about this article, they're looking at this from a business perspective. What in the world is the plan with Twitter? We've heard Elon talk about X as this overall concept, and Fortune kind of runs with it. Now, the only issue I have with this, this is not, not what Elon Musk has said. The only issue I have with that is I really do think that every journalist, I'm not a journalist here, I'm just a commentator, but everybody that looks at this really should be taking what Elon Musk says with a grain of salt, that he's either trying to achieve some kind of other tonal purpose with his statements, or he's just not thinking through the implications of all of them. And he's very rapid to change his mind, his direction, his plans, uh, what have you. So I, I don't know that I would include this here, but th you do see that they're trying to say, okay, he's, he's a little bit crazy. He's, they're setting up the early paragraphs where he's crazy. What does he want to do with Twitter? He wants to have a larger global version of 10 cents WeChat used by virtually every Chinese netizen don't use netizen fortune at some point in the day for transactions ranging from booking concert tickets to paying for groceries delivered. If successful, Musk and his wealthy clique of co-investors could yet earn a fortune by pocketing a commission on each transaction. Now, what's interesting here is this is a kind of non sequitur to everything that's being talked about up here, but it does help establish, again, this kind of really ephemeral 
tangential version of hypocrisy, right? Because what they've set up here is that what Elon Musk wants to do with Twitter is to take a commission of transactions. And what is it that Apple does? Well, Musk's Apple problem under the App Store rules, Apple gets a 30% cut of any revenue Twitter generates through iOS-enabled mobile devices, which is not entirely true. I don't think, I think like Twitter Blue would be a subscription service that if you signed up for with Apple, they've got a lower subscription fee for 12 months. I, there's a whole bunch of stuff we'd actually have to analyze there. It's not as flat rate as Fortune suggests here. This embedded fee has prompted Fortnite publisher Epic Games to take Apple to court where they got absolutely whipped and is now cause enough for Musk to tweet he is going to war with the company. Again, very aggrandizing kind of language. But by by siding with this 30% tax is immoral, et cetera, et cetera, as Elon Musk went out with, who else are you going to call to your defense but Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney, who I have to give credit to. I have a number of interactions with him on Twitter. We fight a little bit. He tries to defend himself. I try to point out problems. Uh, and he is always engaged. And he has always uh, been willing to have that conversation. So, you know, I, I give Tim Sweeney trouble on uh, on Twitter and on here talking about this position that he has taken against Apple and the breach of contract and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but he isn't, you know, some of the gaming journalists that block you instantly when you say something like, hmm, I'm not sure that's quite right uh, or anything else uh, at that level. He does engage with those conversations. And I have to I, I always have to admit I respect that. And the same goes for Taylor Lorenz, who will be appearing on our screen very shortly. Musk has accused Apple of pulling its advertising on Twitter, arguing its executives like Tim Cook must therefore hate free speech. No, we just hate your speech, Elon. Epic Games CEO Tim Sweeney offered his backing to Musk's stance on Monday, tweeting, Apple is a menace to freedom worldwide. They maintain an illegal monopoly on app distribution. They use it to control American discourse, and they're endangering protesters in China by storing sensitive customer data in a state-owned data center. Wow. Pretty broad speech from Mr. Sweeney and his company that's 40% owned by Chinese state agency Tencent. But hey, you do what you got to do if you're Mr. Sweeney. Um, so these two getting along on Twitter momentarily, uh, but elsewise, people are not so keen on him just declaring war on Apple all of a sudden. Fellow billionaire Mark Cuban says, hey, we have no idea what free speech on Twitter is because you are the judge and the jury. There's some truth to that, certainly. And if you're mercurial in that role, it isn't terribly helpful to knowing exactly what you can or can't say on Twitter. Apple was Twitter's biggest advertiser in the first, in the first quarter, accounting for more than 4% of the latter's revenue through its $48 million worth of ads. You don't want to lose 4% on your margin. And yet we're not talking about somebody that's dedicated to you know 20% of your margin. Should Apple pull Twitter from its app store, a threat Musk claimed on Monday it had made, it would deal a potentially lethal blow to as ambitious turnaround plans for the loss banking app. You want to keep Apple's money if you can. Is it a lethal blow if they decide to get upset? Eh, I don't know. Musk has therefore threatened to develop his own alternative to the iPhone that could siphon customers away from the company's cash cow. And this is what I mean, right? You know, this is this is what he goes out there with. I I will have to make an alternative phone if there is no other choice. Sure. Maybe. Maybe he would. He's very impulsive on these kinds of things, but you just see this kind of threatening language. Twitter faces mounting criticism. Uh, so that we've got that first kind of concept. He's fighting with Apple. Let's make sure we get to the end of that story before we move on to the, the human rights and misinformation stuff, which is also part of this video. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, and we do get 
Elon Musk, thanks Tim Cook for taking me around Apple's beautiful headquarters. Good conversation. Among other things, we resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was clear that Apple never considered doing so. Now, this is Elon Musk messaging out and committing on a political capital kind of basis to the world that Apple's not going to pull Twitter off of their store. Now, that doesn't actually solve one of the primary issues that he had when he really uh, started getting animated on Twitter, which was that Apple and some of their communications department was saying, yeah, no, we're pulling marketing because we don't know what leadership's going to do and we have issues with the way Twitter is going to go. But Elon Musk going so broad got himself a face-to-face meeting with Tim Cook. You and I can't do that in general and was able to presumably not lie about this because Tim Cook doesn't come immediately into the tweets and argue this point and say, hey, they're not going to pull Twitter off of the App Store. And it really wouldn't seem likely that they would do that in any event. So there's Elon Musk declaring victory, kind of, but not over the fight that he was having with Apple directly, which is about marketing dollars. And so you see kind of Mr. Musk at work. But that's the end of that story. Thank you for the super chat. Yep. They kiss and make up a bit, a bit, because the actual removal of the app from the store never seemed to be a very high likely uh, outcome of this. You still got marketing issues. Then Yahoo Finance slash Fortune continues with, on Monday, international human rights groups warned his decision to eviscerate. We've got gutting. We've got eviscerate. Keep, Keep your eye on those bits of language. The company's content moderation team risked making Twitter a party to mass atrocities in foreign countries where artificial intelligence is incapable of detecting hate speech spread in local languages. So I think the notion of this paragraph is that Elon Musk intends to have AI and robots check for language he doesn't like, Twitter language that is unacceptable, uh, more than people. You know, and he, he fired huge chunks of the company. I don't even think we have a good... Uh, number of uh, remaining employees yet established here Uh, and that they won't be able to do that for non-English language as well as they can do it for English. And reasonable minds can differ about how well the robots can police speech in English uh, as well at this point in time. Now, I do have at least a problem, a small one, with suggesting that the communications platform is a party to, to these kinds of things. And this is part of what we're going to talk about now as we head into kind of like the second half of discussing these headlines, which is how responsible is Twitter? This is very much a reasonable minds can differ kind of thing. And it's kind of political, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's really a discussion of, you know, what level of culpability does a platform have if a bit of messaging goes and incites a riot? If a bit of messaging goes and encourages a bad act? Um, should Twitter be the police force here? And, and you know, if you've been in virtual reality with me for a while or, or on this channel for a while, that I have a fundamental problem with these platforms deciding what truth is and what authoritative sources are. And that I'm generally going to be in favor, even if I don't much care for Elon Musk's management or communication style, of the platforms taking a more limited role in establishing what you or I can see. That doesn't mean that it's not worth a conversation about the the edge cases of this thing and and whether Twitter should be held liable because that's what the law does, right? The law holds things as problems enough to make you pay for them. Uh, And that's what controls behavior, right? And we we see variations of this uh, in things like DMCA takedowns. We see platforms, YouTube is the most guilty of this in general, suggesting that they have to take down something that gets a DMCA notice, no matter how ridiculous. And that's wrong. I put that up. I respond to that almost every time they say it. 
uh, on Twitter and say, no, no, it's just that your incentives are aligned that way, that Congress has put forth that you aren't liable if you do these various things, but you certainly don't have to. You don't get liability from not doing them. And that's a distinction that the platforms like to use to be ambiguous. Twitter here is fighting a public relations fight that we'll see in a number of different places based on the notion that they have to be policing or they are essentially an accessory to terribly heinous things like murder uh, and, and genocide, right? Uh, this in particular is, I, I want to believe, uh, I believe a, um, uh, let's see here, one of the wealth, one of its wealthiest states. I don't remember. I think this is India, right? Yeah, the hot link stuff was throwing me. So in India, uh, you've got commentators on India saying things like it just takes four hours from a tweet to go into a mass atrocity in the Indian context, which sounds awful. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the question is, what liability do we want to impose on Twitter for that? And then really thinking through the secondary order kind of questions, if we do impose liability on Twitter for that, where does that end? And if, if we can't put a good answer on that, then you start to get into the moderation policies and the problems that I tend to have with, with YouTube or, or Twitter or Facebook or wherever. Uh, and so what you're getting here today, what we'll see in uh, Ms. Loren's discussion, which we'll get to uh, right now, I think is a good time. So let's just pull this one down. Uh, is this notion that if we, uh, if, if, if Twitter changes its moderation policies realistically at all, then they're suddenly going to be culpable for these very, very bad things that are otherwise happening. And I, I'm not sure that's fair. I'm not sure that's where we want to set the line, but I think it's an interesting conversation. And some of these places, the reason this is in headlines, some of these places assume the right answer in a way that I think is very deleterious to the conversation. I don't think that this answer is as obvious as some people think. And I'm going to show you both sides of that as we go along to just assuming that there's an absolute correct answer here and that everybody else is silly uh, on, on their conversation points. So before we get into Ms. Lorenz uh, and the Washington Post's take on this, let's see if we have any comments. Um, I'm going to take a sip of tea here. I know we got a super chat. Skew, Hogue, I said kiss and make up, not French kiss and make up. I don't really want to think about Elon Musk and Tim Cook French kissing. That's just me. But that's me and Tapco oligarchs in general, right? Ew, rolling on the floor laughing emoji. In any case, crisis averted or more to come? Oh, there's... If there's one thing I've learned about covering Elon Musk and the Twitter saga in 2022 is there is no limit to more to come, right? He'll just start a fight. I mean, this Apple stuff came out of nowhere. He just had a Twitter thread that was like down with Apple and Tim Sweeney joins in. He's like, yeah, down with Apple. It's like, okay, great, right? I do love him, by the way, calling out the illegal monopoly of app distribution when literally no court anywhere has found for that right now. Uh, but that's all right. You can believe what you believe, Tim. That's A-OK. -okay. Get that information out there. It's probably misinformation as you say it right now, but that's all right with me. See, that's the difference. Uh, let's get this window the right size. Right size these windows. Uh, and we will get into a very chill headline from the Washington Post. Twitter ends its ban on COVID misinformation. Oh, all right. Thanks. Nailed it. <laughs> and I did see a, a late super chat coming in here. Moby. Uh, Sinead McSweeney, a Twitter, a Twitter Irish executive who has let go her, uh, who was let go, has obtained a temporary high court injunction to stop her termination as it was not compliant with Irish employment laws. You know, I saw that this morning. It is not part of our tab parade here. Uh, but yes, uh, certainly we talked a little bit about it uh, when the resignations came in. And I said something along the lines of, I'm not sure these are legitimate resignations. 
people ask why. And I said, well, because the setup is you say yes to the hardcore Twitter. Um, and if you don't, I will deem it your resignation. Formally, legally, that's not a resignation. The failure to do something absent additional consideration is not you resigning from your job. It's essentially a kind of constructive discharge that can get you into trouble in certain jurisdictions, especially in Europe uh, or former Europe. Uh, and so uh, it is no surprise to me that Twitter will have certain of these issues with regards to how they treated certain of their employees. I don't think they'll have those same issues in the United States for the most part. Uh, but I did see the story, Mo. Thank you for bringing it back to my attention. Um, we're not going to cover it separately in a headline. I did read about it. Uh, but the basics are is that that process of not saying yes to an, an email was deemed generic and not a formal resignation. And so Twitter restored her. Uh, and uh, yeah, so Twitter's having all sorts of trouble with kind of compliance issues. I think we knew this about Elon Musk in terms of like his interactions with the SEC and statements about his stock and whatnot. He really doesn't believe in or that they apply to him uh, the kind of regulatory regimes, the what we would probably consider the smallish stuff that is mostly compliant uh, by paperwork. He, he, he just ignores that or, or thinks that it's too much of a, a hassle for him. But he does wind up having to restore people's jobs when their resignation wasn't accepted by the high court and, and things like that. So definitely. Here's dad, Papa Hogue, back in the house. Hey, Papa. I may disagree with every word you say, but I will defend to my death your right to say it. That's the America that I remember. Go blue. That's actually Voltaire. I, I'm not even sure it's Voltaire. Uh, <laughs> I, it's very funny that you say that, dad. I give this story, uh, but I was new to Twitter um, back whenever I was starting to market the, the firm, Hogue Law. I was new to Twitter and they were having some kind of conversation about punching people. Uh, and I said, basically this. This is actually what I tweeted. Uh, you know, I just tweeted the, the Voltaire quote. And, and this is my introduction to Twitter. This is the first like six months I was on it. And I was called like a Nazi by like all sorts of people. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. We're learning a little bit about the modern uh, social media political paradigm. Uh, and it's one of the reasons uh, Mrs. Hoglaw, co-counsel, really stayed off a social media bunch is that she saw all these people attacking me for saying this kind of sentiment. Uh, and got, I got a lot of trouble, got a lot of trouble, but it is the truth, dad. And I appreciate you bringing it up. Thank you for, uh, the super chat. You don't have to super chat me, dad. Uh, and it is, it's an important kind of concept, right? That the, the freedom of speech as a notion, we're not talking about the first amendment. So this can apply across jurisdictional lines that the right to expression is most at risk when somebody is saying something that is bad. That is heinous, that is dislikable, especially if it is dislikable by a majority, the mob. Uh, and so if the freedom of speech or expression is to have any power or protective qualities whatsoever, it really has to be applied most consistently and most seriously to stuff we don't like to hear. Uh, and that's 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 hard for people. Everybody likes to hear what they like to hear, right? I'm for the things you're for, and I'm against the things you're against, right? But it's hard. It's hard. Uh, because that's part of what I do here in virtual legality and headlines is try to talk through these issues on a rational basis. Reasonable minds can differ. Um, and at the fullness of freedom of speech, unreasonable minds can say what they want as well, which is a big problem for a lot of people, definitely. Nicholas, Swedish cursing is mostly religious words and inappropriate usage of farm tools. I like your locution there. Can be hard for AI to differentiate it from church quotes and John Deere warning labels. 
Do not sit on front end of tractor. Yeah, I can imagine. I can certainly imagine that. There's all sorts of idiomatic problems that AI would have across jurisdictional lines. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's important from a commercial perspective for Elon Musk, regardless of how he believes on speech, to try to satiate the Tim Cooks and the other tech oligarchs of the world, the people with the marketing messages. But I honestly think part of the reason he immediately launched into the Twitter blue stuff is that he wants to get his revenue more member and subscriber base than advertiser base, which you're also seeing across all other platforms, right? You are seeing all sorts of content creators move into, I want my own website. I don't want to be beholden to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter or whatnot. The advertisers are the ones that really run these places. And I don't want to be able to be, you know, completely stricken of my livelihood. If you're that invested in a platform like this one, because the CEO of Coke doesn't like what I had to say about the world cup in Qatar right? Whatever it might be. Uh, that is happening on the margins with respect to marketing dollars. And so you see a lot of people moving out of that. In content creator terms at a much smaller level, that's what Utreon is. That's what Patreon is, is going and getting some kind of subscription tier from people that want to see this content continue. That isn't beholden to what YouTube likes, whether or not we're an authoritative source and whether uh, we have offended someone at some corporate headquarters in some fashion. And so you're going to see that movement continue to happen. And uh, it's interesting It's interesting to consider what the implications for that might be. Uh, but we're a long way from there. And Twitter is still absolutely dependent on those advertising dollars. So we will see. Certainly, I think it's a great point, Nick, that AI is going to struggle with idioms. It really, really is. All right. Let's talk about Taylor Lorenz. I know she's your favorite, folks. I have to tell you, this article is pretty neutral-ish. Now, you still have the kind of self-selection problems of like, who are you asking the question to? How are you framing the answers? That kind of thing. We'll see that as we look through this. Uh, but overall, this is not the, you know, grand offensive Taylor Lorenz article that you might have seen covered in this space in different capacities. So Twitter ends its ban on COVID misinformation. Doctors and public health officials say Musk's decision is a huge step backwards and will lead to more deaths. Now, I like health. Okay. And I'd love to feel better about the health system in the United States. I don't. We can talk about that at a different capacity. But I love health. I think there are a lot of great doctors out there. I think there's a lot of well-meaning people at all sorts of agencies and regulatory bodies. But this subheadline can't help but read to me as people who were once thought better of would like you to listen to them more and don't like not being not listened to. Hmm. Twitter will no longer enforce its policy against coronavirus misinformation. All of these words are going to have a YouTube bot trolling through our video, by the way, guys. So say hello to the YouTube bot. Worrying experts who say the move could have serious consequences in the midst of a still deadly pandemic. Now, the context here from Ms. Lorenz is actually pretty interesting. If you follow her on Twitter at all, uh, she is still very concerned about COVID-19 and the pandemic. So that's that's a part of this. It's also one of the reasons why I think maybe journalists say too much uh, on social media, because I know that she reacts very negatively to anyone that says, oh, well, you know, this about masking or this about policies in these various states. And it comes across very, very much in her Twitter threads as like, so you all want everybody to die. Uh, and it's like, well, no, I don't think so. In fact, I'm in favor of anybody doing whatever they want vis-a-vis -vis their security on this stuff. Uh, but you can see how first she gets this task and how she's going to present it. The rollback of Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policy is just the latest pivot since Elon Musk took control of the company a month ago. She loves pivot, doesn't she? 
If you might recall, that's exactly what she accused folks like Legal Bites of doing vis-a-vis Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Twitter introduced its policy against COVID misinformation in 2020 during the early days of the pandemic. We'll get back to that in just a second. Since then, the company had suspended more than 11,000 accounts and removed more than 100,000 pieces of content for violating the policy. According to a report from the company, several high-profile figures ran afoul of the policy, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose personal account was suspended in January for violating the policy by casting doubt on the efficacy of coronavirus vaccines. Her account was reinstated last week. Experts in public health praised Twitter's efforts to tamp down on COVID misinformation. In a 2021 advisory report to technology platforms, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek H. Murthy cited Twitter's policy as an example of how tech companies should go about combating misinformation. So here's the first bit of interesting kind of what this story is. We're going to look at the Washington Post. We're going to look at Reason, which is, if you're not familiar with it, I don't know how to describe it at this point. It claims that it is a libertarian magazine in the United States. I I, I don't know if that's fully accurate. They're certainly going to advocate for certain things that are of a libertarian bent. We'll see that in a second. And we're going to also look at an Ars Technica headline that takes the exact opposite approach. Um, So lots of interesting stuff here. Health misinformation is a serious threat to public health, Murphy wrote. It can cause confusion, so mistrust, harm people's health, and undermine public health efforts. Limiting the spread of health misinformation is a moral and civic imperative that would require a whole of society effort. Now, this is a government official, right? This is the U.S. Surgeon General. So the story here is between all those sources that I was just talking about is government. And what role Twitter has on that? Is Twitter becoming a mouthpiece? You'll see some of my colleagues, other lawyers on YouTube start talking about the state action doctrine, which can potentially apply liability to a place like Twitter if it is otherwise acting as an arm of the government in the United States. And that is going to continue to become a question. Uh, And it wouldn't surprise me if it became a congressional inquiry, honestly, on some of this stuff, because more and more has come out about exactly how the governments of the world, including right now vis-a-vis Twitter, the EU, we'll talk about that last on our parade of tabs today, uh, have been suggesting that Twitter do various things or else face their wrath. And that's a problem, right? That's a kind of duress, certainly from a regulatory body. And we'll talk about that as well. But the headline item here is that the Surgeon General was getting listened to, wanted to be listened to. Twitter was giving special authoritative power to places like the Surgeon General's office, the WHO, the CDC. And that might be right to some extent, but those bodies, as we know from the last two years, can, giving the benefit of the doubt, they're human beings, like any other human being, can make mistakes can press too hard on one thing or another. And part of the checks and balances system to those mistakes in general is being able to argue against them. Say, hey, I'm not sure that that's right. And yeah, people can be crazy. Hey, don't don't eat light bulbs to try to ward off the coronavirus. But usually you can identify those crazy things and the things that are proper to say, hey, how did you get there? What is your data? Those kinds of things. We're getting problematic notes or bans or suspensions all across these platforms from 2020 till now, still, honestly, just me mentioning it this much might result, you might see this when you're watching it in replay mode or otherwise, to this video might result in uh, a note that says, you know, find out the good COVID information here because this guy's a crazy loon. Uh, And I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about Twitter's policies regarding COVID, but you never know, YouTube can't tell. However, Twitter has also struggled to police misinformation accurately and recently began labeling some factual information about COVID as misinformation and banning scientists and researchers who attempted to warn the public of the long-term harm of COVID on the body. Now, this is Taylor Lorenz's specific bugaboo, right? This is specifically what she is talking about on Twitter very often. 
uh, is people that are suggesting that long COVID isn't real or isn't as significant as uh, some people might otherwise say. And it's a debate on social media and these various things. It really bothers her. And that is apparent to me just following her, just watching her on social media. And that, that presents an issue when trying to report on it at the same time, in my opinion. And your mileage might vary. Reasonable minds can differ on this. Uh, but it's hard to kind of differentiate that, even though as a headlines kind of topic, I don't really see much here other than the same thing that we see in all these kinds of articles and conversations, which is what is misinformation, right? You don't have some kind of high-level, multiverse-oriented way to tell what is truth and fiction, especially when the scientific process is ongoing. And so one of the issues I think that happened over the past couple of years is this jump to whatever they say is information, whatever you say against them is misinformation. And that continued even as they changed. And that created a massive amount of distrust. These are my opinions. They don't have to be yours. Uh, but that's what I think happens here. And you get this overall concept and the Washington Post and people like Taylor Lorenz report on it as if it's a known quantifiable thing that we can just adjust our thinking for. That's misinformation. That's information. How do you establish that? It's what the Surgeon General says. What if the Surgeon General gets it wrong? It does not compute, right? Like there, there's no follow-up to that from this particular sourcing. And I, I think that's a problem. As of last weekend, many tweets promoting anti-vaccine content and COVID misinformation remain on the platform. And for Ms. Lorenz, the issue is, is she doesn't give examples. Right. We can't judge whether this is, in fact, the case. I have no doubt it is right. There's there's stuff that's wrong everywhere. But that stuff that is wrong comes from all sides. Uh, and that creates a problem when you're just trying to silence one or the other. That's that's from me. That's not from The Washington Post. That is a real there is a real danger of setting yourself up with the task of deciding what is true and what is false. Emily Dreyfus, co-author of Meme Wars, The Untold Story of the Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. Very short title. Well done. <laughs> Set of Twitter's fumbles surrounding COVID misinformation. Now, this is this quote is is absolutely right. But I'm not sure Ms. Lorenz uses it to its great effect here because she's trying to back up this point uh, in terms of, she summarizes it as in, in terms of Twitter's fumbles surrounding COVID misinformation. But what are you, if, you're, if you have a misinformation policy at all, what are you doing except trying to establish what is true from what is false? But she said that that was all the more reason to improve the process and policies not scrap them altogether. During the pandemic, social media companies finally realized misinformation is a life or death issue because medical misinformation about COVID had such dire consequences it could not be ignored. Musk getting rid of these policies is backtracking on years and years of painfully won lessons on how to make the internet safe and not harmful. And now I'm not going to begrudge this expert her opinion on this kind of stuff, but this is the authoritative kind of argument, right? We know best. Other people can't hear these things or else they're going to kill themselves. Uh, and that has not been my experience. People do come into the comments. Maybe they'll come into the chat right now and say, well, Rick, you know, you're a smart guy. Thank you. Uh, but not everybody is. And so we have to be more careful about those things. I think that's fine. That's fair. That's a, it's a good kind of critique of my own position on this stuff. But where does that end? Right? Because we do have to treat adults like adults at some point. And I don't want Elon Musk to be in charge of what's information or misinformation. Right? You had... Mark Cuban's commentary in that Fortune article that said, we don't know what freedom of speech is because you're the judge and jury. Well, Elon Musk is the judge and jury of all aspects of this. So you can criticize him, but you do have to ask the question, especially if you hate Elon Musk, of <clears throat> do you want this guy deciding what is truth and what is false? What is information and what is misinformation? I know I don't. I know I don't. But that goes for Elon Musk. That goes for Donald Trump. That goes for Joseph Biden. That goes for everybody. 
Uh, and so <clears throat> this is this is one of those areas where I think social media is going to continue to really struggle because there is certainly a strain of folks that believe this kind of thing that say, essentially, you have to be muzzling certain voices or else you're not doing your job. And that strain of folks might well pass legislation or otherwise discuss making these platforms liable for that kind of activity. Now, maybe you say, Rick, that's all well and good. You're for freedom of speech, freedom of expression. That's nice. Uh, but platforms suck. <laughs> YouTube should be liable for something. Twitter should be liable for something. Facebook should be liable for something. I'm not going to say you're wrong philosophically. I am going to say it's a very difficult nut to crack in terms of writing the law so that you don't result in some kind of Elon Musk and Susan at YouTube and Mark Zuckerberg are the ones that are actually deciding what discourse is based on what the government tells them it is. And that's troubling for someone like me, certainly. I'm doing internal medicine and I see a lot of patients in primary care clinic, uh, said Max Jordan in Gumani. I totally butchered that. Sorry, Max. A resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. A lot of what I do when I offer vaccines is combating disinformation. The spread of misinformation online on platforms people rely on for news like Twitter worries me, especially when I think about my patients who are more vulnerable, older, or not English speaking. If they're not English speaking, are they getting all their information from English Twitter? Probably not. Probably not. John Schaefer, a health sociologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, so on the authoritative source list, said he worried that when combined with Musk's plan to allow Twitter users to purchase a blue verified checkmark for $8 a month, the abandonment of the misinformation policy will be especially dangerous. People with the purchase blue checkmarks will certainly sell snake oil and promote baseless ideas for their own personal and political profit. And the result will be that poor people will continue to die from COVID, Schaefer said. It's very bold. I, I'm glad Mr. Schaefer could read the future. I cannot. So I'm a little bit at a disadvantage uh, to, to Mr. Par probably Dr. Schaefer here. But you do see this again, the strain of people that would otherwise be deemed authoritative would like to get, would like to stay authoritative. They don't want Hogue on YouTube saying, hmm, I don't know, we should think about this a little bit further. Certainly the rollout of Twitter Blue has not been terribly successful, but I would argue that certainly you didn't need to be a Twitter Blue subscriber to start selling snake oil. We have about what? seven months of hangouts and headlines to start talking about snake oil salesmen in all walks of life. Lucky Tran, director of science communications at Columbia University, said scrapping the COVID misinformation policy will contribute to public confusion. We're going through an infodemic alongside a pandemic. Wow, buzzwords. What that means is people are exposed to so much information that they don't know what's true or what's not. They're incapable. They need our help. They don't know what to do to protect their health and the health of people around them. This change by Musk is going to make that problem worse. Top men, right? Famously from the scene of uh, uh, the uh, Indiana Jones, where uh, it says top men are on it vis-a-vis -vis the Ark of the Covenant. It's a joke about bureaucracy and what experts do and what trust you have to put in experts from back in the 80s. But it is going to be the case that folks that have an expert authority or appeal to that are, are going to want to push for that. I hate this notion. This is editorializing by me. But... This notion that you cannot possibly understand the data that you are getting, you can't possibly interpret these things without some kind of guidepost. And more specifically, it's important to understand, we're not just talking about a guidepost between, oh, this is a bad idea, this is a good idea, to kill what these folks deem to be the bad ideas and to not combat whatever ideas the authoritative sources put out there is intensely problematic for a discourse around these kinds of topics. And asking Elon Musk to impose it is, is interesting. Now, I said this was a pretty neutral article, and it is, but it's clearly slanted and getting quotes in one direction so far. 
Let's see where it goes. The move comes as Musk appears to be shifting more of the responsibility to policing misinformation to users through the company's Birdwatch program, which isn't called Birdwatch anymore. It's community notes, which allows Twitter users to rate and add corrections to tweets. Lately, however, as Birdwatch has scaled to more users, incorrect information about COVID has been added to tweets simply because a mass of users upvoted it. This is dangerous, Dreyfus said. Hmm. Musk is scrapping a misinformation policy that was imperfect and replacing it with a new system that's much more easily hacked and gamed. What he's doing with this policy is washing his hands of Twitter's responsibility of determining fact or fiction and giving it over to the users of Twitter, which we know is not going to be an effective strategy at all. Okay, now, from a lawyer's perspective, you just said Twitter has a responsibility there. Where? From a legal perspective, it wouldn't seem so. And do we want our platforms to have a responsibility of determining fact or fiction? I dare say Elon Musk, probably pretty bad at it. They will make true whatever they want to make true, says the mob. It's very interesting critiques, right? Because if you only have one class of authoritative sources discussing these things, they will make true whatever they want to make true. Isn't it equally applicable in the opposite when you have someone saying these things? Well, that's beyond the fold. Yol Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, said Musk's decision to stop policing COVID misinformation was bad and damaging and probably not tenable going forward. You simply cannot do that if you are operating what you want to be a commercially viable consumer service. Well, you might be able to if people want to be involved in birdwatch and communities and pay for Twitter. If they think it's a valuable thing in their lives, that might be the direction Twitter is trying to head. Musk himself has spread COVID misinformation, okay? In 2020, he claimed that coronavirus cases would be close to zero by April 2020. He also told SpaceX workers in March 2020, as the world was just beginning to shut down during the pandemic, that they were more likely to die in a car crash than of COVID. That June, he reopened the Tesla plant in Fremont, California, against county health and safety orders, but promised employees they could stay home if they felt ill and would not be penalized. Employees with COVID who did stay home, however, were promptly fired. Now, that's a description from Ms. Lorenz. I dare say Mr. Musk would argue some of the finer points there. Uh, but certainly, missed prognostications in the spring of 2020 are not Elon Musk's uh, province alone, and certainly not even the province of non-authoritative sources on these kinds of things. So misinformation on this level is a question mark to me. Certainly it proves to be wrong, but a lot of stuff that a lot of people said proved to be wrong. Uh, so I don't know whether we should hold feet to the fire on that or not. Musk also called virus-related restrictions fascist on a 2020 Tesla earnings call. That's not misinformation. That's a political opinion that you or I can most certainly agree or disagree with. During a podcast appearance in September 2020, Musk said he was not getting vaccinated and downplayed the virus's death toll. Everybody dies, he said. Okay, so Elon Musk, something of an asshole, not necessarily spreading misinformation in that paragraph. But experts say Musk's decision will lead to more deaths. It's a huge step backwards in a pandemic that has killed a million Americans and millions more worldwide. It's certainly to get many more people killed from COVID than otherwise would. The Twitter backing out on their misinformation, essentially banning and suspension policy will get many more people killed. So that's the overall assertion here. What do you think? So as I said, I think Taylor Lorenz here is relatively neutral in presentation, but not neutral in what she chooses to present, right? If you just read the Washington Post, it's the apocalypse. It's the worst possible thing Twitter could do. There is no reason for them to have done it. It's a James Bond villain running the store. And all the experts agree that this is silly, right? That's what you get from the Washington Post. But that's almost certainly not the end of the story. We've seen enough in this space to know it is not the end of the story at all, right? So before we head into some of the more politically oriented uh, stories on this score, what do you all think of this? Uh, I see somebody saying uh, something goes into the swear jar. I guess, yeah, I swore a little bit. Sorry. You know, prime time type swearing. Uh, so I appreciate that. 
what do you think of this particular analysis of what's happening, right? Sardism says, I'm missing the part where that's misinformation, not just getting it wrong. My godmother is a pediatrician and she thought we had nothing to worry about right up until we did. Yeah, I mean, I think you could kind of watch it happening. And the truth is that they're talking about March of 2020. I remember having a conversation about it uh, in Asia uh, in about December of 2019 and talking through uh, with the family, not sure what it's going to mean for the U.S., not sure whether it's going to come over, these kinds of things. By February, you know, there were runs on stores. And, and so I had talked to co-counsel about that, but we didn't really know exactly what was going to happen. And I think he's a blowhard. I think he's a blowhard on everything. Sorry, folks, if you're big Elon Musk fans, but I think he is. But at the end of the day, um, you know, those, those, those were assertions. And certainly people can have a lot of opinions on vaccine mandates. A lot of people had opinions on those all across the world. Um, so I don't know that that's, you know, a reason to kick him out unless you, as the author of this piece, Ms. Lorenz, effectively think that that itself is an unacceptable position to hold. Uh, and I think that that comes across a little bit in the article. And that's a shame from a journalist, but it's okay. She has presented her argument. I would have liked to have seen some other people there saying, hey, well, why might this be a good thing, right? Elon Musk probably isn't just a James Bond villain. It's probably not just to kill people. What might be the defense here? What does Twitter have to say about it? What do others who talk about this have to say about it? Washington Post isn't interested in that. They're interested in establishing that it's the worst thing ever. <clears throat> Secret McSquirrel says it's like Boozy deciding what is disruptive. Right. Well, certainly Taylor Lorenz being in charge of the misinformation board would give me a great deal of pause. Uh, but it's not distinct to Ms. Lorenz, right? I feel the same way about Elon Musk. I would feel the same way about the trust and safety person at Twitter. This is where you get into it. It's like, I don't know you. And I'm certainly not going to agree with you 100% of the time on this stuff. And then you add in government requests and you have a whole melange of problems arising from this thing because the government can't censor. That's in the Constitution. But what happens when they ask Twitter to censor for them? And then what happens if they threaten Twitter at the same time that they ask Twitter to censor for them? Well, that, that we're really starting to get into very interesting questions of law. Uh, and that's, that's a potential problem. Uh, let's see here. Morton, uh, oh, no, that's, that's not right. Sorry. Is Turbo, 1984, says what Hogue doesn't realize, I'm always interested in comments that start with this, is that Musk fans constantly have to grapple with Elon overpromising features and products. <laughs> I, I think I do realize that only from the last year is that he promises all sorts of stuff. Absolutely nobody would be offended for calling him a blowhard. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it is, Turbo. I, that's what I would describe him as. If we're giving full benefit of the doubt, uh, he's like Peter Molyneux in the gaming space. If that rings a bell for anybody that's like, this nut will turn into a tree and all these various things will happen in Fable or this, I'm really talking to this person uh, through my connect or what have you, uh, that this is at bare minimum, benefit of the doubt, a dreamer who says whatever pops into his head less benefit of the doubt is a blowhard that tries to manipulate messaging and interactions with other people like Tim Cook at Apple uh, through being extra vociferous while also having billions of dollars. Uh, so, hmm, yes. Morton says, what other sources should be consulted for such an article? I, I mean, I think we're going to, we're going to talk about kind of the opposite end of this, especially with the reason article. We're going to, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, Morton says, Twitter user 4457, who is certain that the cure to COVID is eating two cheese sandwiches a day, question mark, Musk itself, who does generally not respond to inquiries unless it's for pieces that favor him. I, I don't, if you can look at Twitter user 4457 and say, hey, that cheese sandwich idea doesn't sound great. I think we're doing all right. 
The, the problem is fundamentally, if you establish this bright line of what information and misinformation is, and it's going to be up to Elon Musk to determine anything that's remotely close that criticizes authoritative sources are going to be reported on by places like the U.S. Surgeon General's office or the Washington Post as things that are misinformation or wrong. And you can see they don't give a lot of examples in Ms. Loren's article. And when they do, some of them are arguably misinformation. They're almost all forward-looking statements. So it's a little bit hard to declare those misinformation of themselves. But when you start getting into him saying vaccine mandates are fascist, it's like, well, that's a political position. You or I don't have to agree with that at all. But that's not misinformation. That's that's a, that's an opinion. If you try to use that to, to add foundation to your argument, you've lost me rhetorically because, OK, now I have to question everything else that you've put into your article about misinformation because I don't know what you're talking about because uh, you've already given examples that are not what I would classify as misinformation. Maybe wrongheaded, maybe blowhardy. We don't have to give Elon Musk the benefit of the doubt of every political thought that he's ever had in his mind, but not misinformation. And if you start to blur that line, then I say, ah, that's where we really start to have problems. Because if you got a misinformation guy at Twitter saying, no, can't say that, it's like, well, why not? Why can you not argue that the mandates are, are fascist if that's what you want to do? Because I think that's a useful bit of society to have that argument and, and maybe a strong defense. Because like, you're ridiculous. You're a ridiculous person. And here's why they're necessary. Here's why they're good. Here's how they save lives, whatever it might be. But just killing that conversation entirely not only hurts the conversation and getting to better information, it also makes people conspiracists, right? The reason you have this lack of trust, the reason you're having these conversations is because you did see all this offboarding of things that were contrary to what authoritative sources told you. And you might be in favor of that. You might be entirely in favor of the U.S. Surgeon General or the WHO or the CDC or how they comported themselves and all of this. But if you just say, hey, we're going to kill everybody that says anything against them, it has it raises questions for people to think about these things. Why? What are we talking about? If it's stupid, it's stupid. We deal with stupid information all the time. If it's not stupid, shouldn't we have that kind of pushback and questioning of our regulatory bodies, especially if they have the power of the gun and jail or getting rid of you and having you fired or whatever else it is that they could do to you? They were really affecting livelihoods on this. And I think that's worthwhile to talk about. And I don't want Twitter of all places to get in the way of that because I don't think they know what they're doing on this. And that goes well before Elon Musk. That's Jack Dorsey, right? We have videos here about Twitter making stupid decisions and writing stupid policies and having terms and conditions that can be interpreted however they want. I would see that avoided <laughs> if we could. So I get it. I get it. There are people saying stupid things. The question is, should all of that be removed by a decider that you or I don't know how they decide things in a room somewhere in San Francisco or elsewhere? That Sarah, referring to Matt Musk as a cursey word makes me almost as happy as when you diss on Chief Justice Roberts. Clapping emoji, smiling emoji, celebratory emoji. Thanks for the belated birthday gift. From that, Sarah, laughing emoji. Well, I this is what he comes across as on social media. I cannot claim to know him, uh, but certainly I don't take whatever he says in any given moment without that grain of salt at this point because he does just say things for effect. Paul, the logical destination of muzzling alternative views is China now? It's possible. It's certainly an authoritative, authoritative, not so separate from authoritarian kind of perspective on these things. And I do I do worry about that. <clears throat> Midnight Wind says the actual conversation will resolve the misinformation problem quickly. I tend to agree. Don says, I think I'm done complaining about Musk. More interested on your thoughts on Midnight Suns over the next few days. Bitcast, definitely on the Bitcast, Don. I'm very excited about Midnight Suns, which is a Marvel card strategy game from Jake Solomon, the maker of XCOM, which I love. Uh, and so I'm really enthused about trying that game out. Already on pre-order, will be coming out tomorrow. So yes, I'll be talking about Midnight Suns on the Bitcast. You don't have to worry about that. 
and so, all right, let's take a look at the other kind of version of events here, because I, I do think the Washington Post skips on that a bit. And for some reason, did I close the whole window? Because that's going to be a problem. I did not. Fantastic. Uh, just hang on one second as we hit multiple windows here. <laughs> I think this is the right one. Perfect. We can see that uh, it goes... Got to get rid of all these ads. I know people are going to say, use your ad blocker, Rick. I like to give the places I use the articles from ads. Uh, you get something like a CNN business article. Twitter is no longer enforcing its COVID misinformation policy. Headlines, very chill, very similar to the Washington Post. But you get the same kind of commentary. Here's the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. Twitter did not formally appear to announce the change. They just put up uh, a, a note on their website. So if we go and we look at this note, it just says, Effective November 23rd, 2022, Twitter is no longer enforcing the COVID-19 misleading information policy. And that policy primarily starts in March of 2020. Um, and so I apparently scrolled the wrong way because it's backwards uh, on this. And for whatever reason, I didn't uh, I didn't set it to the right place. So apologies there. Um, but uh, they talk about broadening their definition of harm. So this is listed as April 1, 2020. We have broadened our definition of harm to address content that goes directly against guidance from authoritative sources of global and local public health information. Uh, we'll remove content where it has a clear cause to call to action that could directly pose a risk to people's health. They got all sorts of these kinds of lists that talk about going against authoritative health sources, right? We've broadened it again in March. Um, we are enforcing this in close coordination with trusted partners, including public health authorities and governments. Uh, to, for, to address things that go against authoritative sources. And that's all well and good. Twitter's allowed to run its platform how it will, but it's this government's problem that is going to come up again and again. So here's reason. I don't think we've used reason here on headlines before. Much like my follow Fox and Vox policy, reason sometimes says good things. Reason often says ridiculous things. So let's judge what they say here. Twitter quits the Biden administration's ham-handed crusade against COVID-19 misinformation. So... Headlines, folks. <laughs> really, really setting the stage here. Elon Musk's rescission of the platform's prior policy, which forbade dissent from official guidance, is consistent with his promise of lighter moderation. Uh, the change in policy, which users first noted about a month ago after Elon Musk completed his acquisition of the company, is consistent with his avowed commitment to lighter moderation and more freewheeling debate. But according to the Washington Post, experts are warning that the move could have serious consequences in the midst of a still deadly pandemic. Reason with these sarcastic experts quotes here. So you get the vibe from them. They've got uh, issues with this as presented. Uh, the fear has always been the justification for restricting what people can say about COVID on social media, and it is by no means groundless. If false claims deter medically vulnerable people from getting vaccinated or encourage the use of ineffective and potentially dangerous treatments, for example, the consequences could indeed be serious. But policies like the one Musk has, Musk has ditched present two intersecting problems. Misinformation is an inherently nebulous concept. We've talked about that a lot in this space. And private efforts to suppress it on any given platform are strongly influenced by government pressure. Legal restrictions on COVID-related speech that go beyond recognized exceptions such as fraud and defamation would plainly be unconstitutional. That's legal restrictions. Right. If there were a law, if the government were to move on people that said various things that aren't fraud, defamation, the, the very narrow classes in the United States that you can get in trouble for saying something, they would be unconstitutional. But as Reason points out here, government officials can achieve similar results by publicly and privately demanding that social media companies do more to curtail 
the spread of misinformation. Quotes. Those demands involve not only more vigorous enforcement of existing rules, but also expanded definitions of unacceptable speech. Platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have a strong incentive to comply with those quote-unquote requests, given all the ways that dissatisfied officials can make life difficult for them through castigation, regulation, litigation, and legislation. The writer was very happy with putting that list together. The upshot, to the extent that companies adopt stricter moderation practices than they otherwise would, is censorship by proxy. Now, this might be going too far. This is a very complicated question, right? And it's, you know, whatever, it's nine in the morning in the east uh, Eastern time zone here in the United States. But there is a line somewhere between a government saying, hey, I think it would be nice for you to know X and the platform taking that information under advisement, like any other user giving it the information and saying, we'll choose to do something about that or we won't. And a government saying, we really think you should do something about this. It would be a pity if something were to happen to this establishment. Right. And sometimes you don't have to say that part. Reason goes on to look at another series of legislations happening right now. This is exactly what we're seeing, according to a First Amendment lawsuit that Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry and Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt filed last May. Discovery in that case has revealed emails showing how keen executives at social media companies were to placate federal officials by suppressing speech they viewed as a threat to public health. Twitter seems to have had an especially cozy relationship with the government's misinformation hunters. I'm looking forward to setting up regular chats, said an April 8th, 2021 message from Twitter to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's the CDC to you and me. My team has asked for examples of problematic content so we can examine trends. So they're going and asking the government for this information. That's a little bit different than the government threatening them with it. So maybe Twitter's okay there. Twitter responded swiftly to the government's censorship suggestions. Thanks so much for this. A Twitter official said in April 16th, we actioned by labeling and removing the tweets in violation of our rules. They're very careful here. This is, this, is, this is well said to try to avoid legal problems for Twitter, that it was a violation of our rules that you just made us aware of. The message, which was headed request for problem accounts, was signed with warmest regard. So much like you see the Washington Post putting its thumb on the scale in one direction, Reason is doing the same here. I don't know that these are the best arguments for treating Twitter as a state actor, but it is a concern, most definitely. That same day, Deputy Assistant to the President Rob Flaherty sent colleagues an email about a Twitter vaccine misinfo briefing. Flaherty said Twitter would inform White House staff about the tangible effects seen from recent policy changes, what interventions are currently being implemented in addition to previous policy changes, and ways the White House and our COVID, COVID experts can partner in product work. That starts to get much scarier in terms of, on the Twitter side, being liable as a government actor. Right again, Government can't censor you in the way that Twitter censors you as a private platform. But if they're working together and the government is making Twitter do something they wouldn't otherwise do, you get problems. Facebook, likewise, was eager to fall in line, especially after President Joe Biden accused the platform of killing people by allowing the spread of anti-vaccination messages. Such criticism was coupled with praise for companies that did what the Biden administration wanted. In an advisory to technology platform, CNN notes, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy cited Twitter's rules as an example of what companies should do to combat misinformation. So again, in a regulatory environment, you can't just say, well, Facebook wants to do this or Twitter wants to do this. It's not a vacuum. So what Reason is trying to establish here, and I don't know if they're doing a great job of it, but they're trying, is to say, well, this whole environment is a place where you're getting threatened. You've got Facebook appearing in front of Congress all the time. You've got people talking about technology platforms, and it's in your best interest to do what the administration wants you to do. So how can we tell whether eager to fall in line is what the company would do on its own or whether they're being quote unquote encouraged to do it by the government? That July 2021 advisory published the day before Biden charged Facebook with homicide called for a whole of society effort, possibly including legal and regulatory measures 
to combat the urgent threat to public health posed by health misinformation. Murthy's definition of misinformation was alarmingly broad and subjective. <clears throat> Defining misinformation is a challenging task, and any definition has limitations, the Surgeon General wrote. One key issue is whether there can be an objective benchmark for whether something qualifies as misinformation. Some researchers argue that for something to be considered misinformation, it has to go against scientific consensus. Others consider misinformation to be information that is contrary to the best available evidence. Both approaches recognize that what counts as misinformation can change over time with new evidence and scientific consensus. Very useful if you're an authoritative source. This advisory prefers the best available evidence benchmark since claims can be highly misleading and harmful, even if the science on an issue isn't yet settled. So this is where you really get into the broadening, right? We don't actually know, and your statement isn't wrong, but it calls into question certain things that we would prefer not having called into question. And I think anybody that's familiar with history at all can look at some of these and say, well, okay. It, so just to be clear, we've got a Galileo problem in terms of what is misinformation, right? That whole heliocentric theory of the solar system would be misinformation on the Twitter of uh, whatever century that would be. Apologies, historians uh, in the chat. And so you've got this issue that you can see that anybody can see where you say, oh my God, we don't want the government deciding these things for the most part. They're wrong sometimes. I don't even, you don't even have to believe they're wrong all the time. You don't have to be like just an anti-government person. You can just say, hey, they're human beings like the rest of us. Twitter's now rescinded policy, which Murthy cited as a model, likewise defer to the officially recognized consensus. We have broadened our definition of harm to address content that goes directly against guidance from authoritative sources of global and local public health information. We are enforcing this in close coordination with trusted partners, including those governments. And under that test says reason, any expression of dissent from official advice could be deemed misinformation. Twitter explicitly forbade statements which are intended to influence others to violate recommended COVID-19 related guidance from global or local health authorities to decrease someone's likelihood of exposure to COVID-19. It specifically mentioned advice about masking and social distancing, both of which raise scientifically and politically contentious issues, especially when guidance inspires legal mandates. And those mandates are what Elon Musk was referring to in that Washington Post article. Is questioning the benefits of general masking misinformation? Yes, according to Twitter. What about conceding the effectiveness of properly worn N95s while describing commonly used cloth masks as worthless? Also misinformation, according to YouTube. If contradicting official advice is the criterion, questioning the scientific basis for requiring masks in schools or for maintaining a specific distance from other people likewise could count as misinformation. It's the questioning itself that the Surgeon General and Twitter identified, and that's where we really start to have problems. Even arguing that the cost of lockdowns outweighed their benefits might qualify since those policies were aimed at enforcing social distancing. And Reason goes on here. I'm not going to go over all of this stuff, but suffice it to say, Reason presents a counter argument to the Washington Post. <clears throat> and earlier you asked me what experts should be discussing this along with what the Washington Post describes. I do think that a properly balanced article on this would talk about some of the issues here. And it would talk about some clear examples of situations where Twitter banned or suspended people that turned out to have perhaps a either better or accidentally better understanding of what the likely outcomes of policies or what have you the, from the WHO or the CDC or the administration would happen uh, in the future. And so I, I think you could have that conversation. I think it would be a better article for it. I don't begrudge the Washington Post from putting up whatever it wants, but we're going to talk about it. And they take one side of the expertise on this particular issue. That's reason. Again, as I said, you've got the Washington Post, you've got CNN Business on the one side. You also have places like Ars Technica doing what reason does in the opposite. Musk's Twitter abandons COVID misinfo policy, shirking huge responsibility. Now, by the way, this isn't like 
what experts say is a huge responsibility. The actual headline is that Elon Musk and Twitter are shirking a huge responsibility. And Ars Technica labels it, puts it under the category of fun times, right? And I didn't highlight, I don't think, any particular aspect of this. But the opening heading here is, under the leadership of billionaire Elon Musk, social media platform Twitter has abandoned its efforts to prevent the spread of dangerous COVID-19 misinformation on its platform, dismaying experts who say false and misleading health information can harm individuals and put lives at risk. Uh, and I think there was some more, uh, there's some more incendiary language here, which I should have highlighted and I didn't. Uh, but Ars Technica takes essentially the opposite tack, right? Dereliction you see as a headline here. Under Musk, the company's priorities have clearly changed. Musk himself has a murky relationship with COVID-related health misinformation. These are supposed to be examples of misinformation. He tweeted that the coronavirus panic is dumb. Certainly think the panic can be challenged, as well as the falsehood that children are essentially immune to COVID-19. However, he later tweeted support of vaccines. Yesterday, Musk manufactured a skirmish with Apple. and They bring in Apple. So Elon Musk continues to be a story here. But the last bit of information I wanted to leave you with is that it's not limited to the U.S. And of course, not every jurisdiction on Earth has something even equivalent to our notions of freedom of speech or, or desire to see that kind of push forth. We, lock, we talked about the European co uh, Convention on Freedom of Expression earlier in Headlines and Hangouts, but Europe seems to be a place where they're a little bit more willing to potentially threaten Twitter to moderate more on their side. And this goes with the DSA, and we haven't talked about the DSA extensively here in this space, but Europe has passed or is in the process of passing regulations in its member states and at its high level in Brussels to be more draconian about moderation and internet information in general. From the Financial Times, Elon Musk is under renewed pressure from the US and EU over his ownership of Twitter as regulators clamp down on the billionaire's push to transform the social network into a freewheeling haven of free speech. The European Commission on Wednesday threatened Musk with a ban unless Twitter abides by strict content moderation rules as US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen indicated that Washington was reviewing his purchase of the social network. So again, when we talk about what Twitter or Facebook or anyone else decides to do, the fact that the government says, hey, we're reviewing you and closely looking at whether or not you're illegal is part of what might be a duress argument for claiming that one of these parties is a state actor and violating the Constitution. The warning from Brussels came in a video call between Musk and Terry Breton, the EU's commissioner in charge of implementing the bloc's digital rules, according to people with knowledge of the conversation. Breton told Musk that Twitter must adhere to a checklist of rules including ditching an arbitrary approach to reinstating banned users, pursuing disinformation aggressively, and agreeing to an extensive independent audit of the platform by next year. Now here, we get into another kind of conflux of law and rights, which is to say the EU, it's their jurisdiction, they're allowed to do whatever they want with it. The DSA I find to be potentially problematic across the internet. We might talk about that in the video at some point. But you see here what that kind of threatening language looks like, right? We don't like what you're doing with banned and non-banned users. You need to pursue disinformation aggressively as determined by whom? The EU, one presumes, and that you have to agree to let us audit your procedures. Now, for one thing, I think all of the platforms could be advantaged, both on their level and at the consumer level, by being more transparent about how they actually use their terms and conditions. So I think that kind of thing is okay. Uh, but I would prefer to see that not done under threat of ban uh, from a government jurisdiction. Musk has warned that unless he struck to those, stuck to those rules, Twitter risked infringing the EU's new Digital Services Act, 
a law that sets the global standard for how big tech must police content on the internet. They'd love to think it does. We'll see how it goes down in the future. Breton reiterated Twitter could face a Europe-wide ban of, or fines of up to 6% of global turnover if it breached that law. Twitter's owner said repeatedly that he thought the DSA was very sensible, said people briefed on the conversation. That's probably what you do say in that conversation. Adding that he had read the legislation. No, he didn't. Part of the reason that there isn't a DSA video right now is that the DSA is ridiculously long and complicated. Uh, so, uh, yes, I don't believe him. <laughs> Thought it should be applied everywhere in the world. Musk has previously said Twitter would adhere to all relevant laws. Among the EU's demands is that Musk provide clear criteria on which users are at risk of being banned. That would be lovely. Musk has reinstated Donald Trump's account after holding a poll of users on whether the former U.S. president should be allowed to return to the site. This is, again, kind of technically true. I don't really believe that poll settled the question for him. Uh, it was cover. In a blog post, Twitter said none of its policies had changed and that its trust and safety team remained strong and well-resourced, but added our approach to policy enforcement will rely more heavily on de-amplification of violative content, freedom of speech, but not freedom of reach. The company said it still sought to promote the, and protect the public conversation, but that it had changed its approach to experimentation by undergoing more public testing. Senior EU officials have expressed concerns over whether Twitter has enough staff to comply with the new rules. You really don't want regulators getting involved with how many people you have to employ, but there you go. In the U.S., authorities' scrutiny of Twitter appears to be focused on foreign ownership of the social media platform. In comments at a New York Times conference, Yellen mentioned the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. when asked about Twitter, saying it looked at transactions involving foreign investment to see if they create national security risk. Interestingly enough, I don't believe the actual investors changed from when it was a more publicly held company to now. The Treasury Secretary added, we don't comment on work that's in progress, but if there are such risks, it would be appropriate for CFIUS to have a look. That's that Committee on Foreign Investment. Securities filing show uh, the Prince of Saudi Arabia. I'm not going to give that a try, folks. I apologize. Rolled over 35 million shares. Now, rolled over means he was already an owner in the company. So it's a little bit unusual to say, hey, now it's a problem. Kingdom Holding Company, an investment fund controlled by the Prince, owns stakes in U.S. companies, including Citigroup, Uber, and Lyft, according to its website. U.S. President Joe Biden this month said Musk's cooperation with other countries was worthy of being looked at by American authorities. While Yellen herself had previously dismissed the likelihood of such a probe, on Wednesday she said she had misspoke. So there is a lot going on behind the scenes at both the EU and U.S. level, which does raise kind of the reason, slightly hyperbolically headlined, concerns about state action and government and what it is that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube are doing when you see Twitter kind of go off the beaten path of big tech and say, we're going to do something different. You don't have to like it, but they say they're going to do something different. And the EU and the U.S. immediately say, well, you're under investigation for all sorts of stuff. You can see how the actual case gets presented that Twitter is actually a state acting body uh, when this kind of stuff comes out. So that's the state of play here on December 1st, 2022. Uh, there's more. You heard just from the super chats and the chat commentary in general, there are things like them being forced to reinstate uh, ahead of uh, one of their offices in Ireland, I think it was, uh, and all sorts of stuff that keeps happening. So it's very interesting to follow. I hope you find it as interesting as I do. Let me know what you think before we head out for our wonderful Thursday today. Britt, coming in with another super chat. Can we talk about misinformation from trusted people? I bet I can still find Maddow saying the vaccine stops the virus dead. Cannot be transmitted in YouTube without a latest info banner below it. Maybe. I don't know. See, the problem with authoritative in general is, one, that really shouldn't be the way that you decide on truth value. Uh, but two, it's establishing what's authoritative. And for the most part, YouTube's tack has been to say, well, if you've got a studio and a multinational media corporation behind you, then you're authoritative, which is um, interesting. 
because a lot of those channels, and I'm not going to call out Rachel Maddow or anybody in particular on this, a lot of those channels uh, have essentially talking heads, just people that comment on things very much not different than Hangouts and Headlines, if we're being honest. Uh, and that isn't any more authoritative, well, than me or anyone else, although I probably admit to not knowing things a little bit more than those talking heads do. Uh, and so that's a problem fundamentally. It's even greater problem. And I covered this when we have the authoritative, just look for the word authoritative on my channel vis-a-vis uh, -vis YouTube, is that they will claim things like, uh, you know, who, who do we have? Rachel Maddow, Tucker Carlson, whoever, talking heads on these various channels uh, are more authoritative on something like, I don't know, corporate merger law <laughs> than I am because I don't have that media backing me. And that becomes a problem, right? Because they aren't good enough at looking at someone's actual credentials, what they've said, you know, the number of times that I have accurately talked you through one of these issues, which I would say is pretty good. I'm pretty proud of my record on this stuff. Uh, and instead just go with, well, you don't have MSNBC behind you. Say, well, I'm kind of glad for that, but it's true YouTube. Uh, and so I do think that they take this different approach. And I think that becomes a problem. It also becomes a problem of trust, not just for the platforms, but for the media companies. And I think you see trust way, way, way down after the last couple of years, uh, because all of these things were challenged properly. Uh, and I don't know what to tell you on, on, on YouTube and these particular uh, policies. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong headed. Is Elon Musk's answer the right one? I'm not going to promise that as all, at all. Uh, so yeah. All right. Well, folks, I think this has been a wonderful episode. I really like talking it through with you all. I always like to try to highlight the different angles you can look at in these various topics. Uh, and I do think, you know, the Washington Post article was not Ms. Lorenz's worst, uh, but it definitely takes a specific slant. Reason takes a specific slant, right? They very much do. They're not doing the opposite. They're not talking about all the experts that say good things about, uh, you know, misinformation policies and public trust in health and safety. Uh, so I always think it's useful to kind of look at these different angles. I think both probably go too far if I'm being fully honest on these things. Uh, but there are interesting ways to look at all of these questions. Leanne says the hard part from someone who works in medicine is that the medical community doesn't have full agreement on anything, really. Not when you get into the nitty gritty of treatment and prevention. I think that's the nature of professionals, right, Leanne? I mean, that's certainly the case for me looking at a legal profession. And that's a little bit different. Generally speaking, we're acting in a total ephemera. Is our contract good or not is determined by another human being in a different way. Uh, and here you actually can save people's lives. You actually have some kind of quantitative metric that you can look at. But I think professionalism is in and of itself a lack of certainty. Um, as I get older and as I've been in my career for longer, I only realize more and more of what I don't know. And thankfully I have referral networks and people I can send folks to because I am at least intelligent enough to get a potential client call and say, oh, I don't do that. Let me tell you who I think can help you. Uh, and I would imagine uh, that the medical profession is no different. Much like law, it's divided into specialties. Specialties might not cross over in information. And much like law, I imagine there's a lot of medical professionals that have a very high opinion of themselves and their opinion and the research that they've done themselves. So I suspect that is the nature of complicated questions of the human experience from professional industries. And that creates the exact problem that you mentioned, which is that, okay, what is scientific consensus? Should scientific consensus actually bar anybody from questioning it? I would argue no, pretty vociferously. Um, but even if you think that there should be some kind of limits on that process, what do we do to establish what consensus is, right? And I talked about the Galileo problem. That exists. There is no question that it does. 
uh, and even Twitter and Facebook and YouTube have dealt with it as our understanding of the pandemic has changed and been modified over the course of a couple of years. Now, they don't, you know, they don't apologize for that. They don't talk about the, oh, we're sorry we suspended you for this or that, or, or people saying when the vaccines were first introduced, we don't have any proof that it affects transmission. And it turned out to not be as useful on transmission side as we would have hoped, um, regardless of what the sources said at the time. And it's just like, oh, well, sorry, that was true at the time. It was a, it's not helpful to it's not helpful to what you're supposed to be doing as a communications platform. So I understand everybody. I understand your position of saying, yeah, I mean, this is tough. We don't have agreement. I also understand the actual experts that are for giving the benefit of the doubt. We want to believe they're good people. And I like to believe that about people want to save lives. And look at this and say, well, there is an idiot saying two cheese sandwiches can save COVID. And if one person believes that, that's an unfortunate thing. But it's very draconian to go in and say we have to squash everybody questioning anything that we say. It also is self-elevating of saying, well, it's just I just happen to have that seat. You just have to listen to me if if that's what it takes to save that one life. I don't know what to tell you on that. I don't know that Elon Musk being zany at Twitter is the right answer, but I do like the fact <clears throat> that folks are talking about this. I do like the fact that we are having a conversation that we probably should have had at least a year ago about what misinformation is and who gets to decide and what liability we want to impose if you disagree with what a platform decides on these kinds of things. I think it's an important conversation to have. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for joining me in Hangouts and Headlines today. Tomorrow will be Casual Friday. I don't know whether there'll be a virtual legality episode today or not. I suspect there will be. Uh, but I want to thank you very much for joining me, for all the wonderful Super Chat support, uh, and for you Utreon supporters that tried to ask a question yesterday. I'm very apologetic for not capturing them. I will get your questions answered either in the next question time, if they don't relate to temporarily to a news item, or as soon as I possibly can. Folks, I really do appreciate it. Have a wonderful Thursday, and I will see you the next time I see you here on the Hoglaw YouTube channel.